Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 4. I'll pray in just a moment. It says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Not too many weeks ago, really just a couple of Sundays ago, Michael Roselle, a potter, was up here and showing us the work of the potter. By the way, I have to remind you, when he started to catch your attention, he said, you know, don't open your Bibles. And he was just joking in a sense, but he was saying, you know, he wanted all your full attention so he could show you the Word of God in pictures and in the way that he was making his pottery. I'm telling you, open your word. (laughs) Open your Bibles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night. A night that we can gather to bring our children to their classrooms so that they can learn about Jesus at their level, but for us to come in here and do the same. So that we might learn, Lord, all about you and all about us. And Lord, I pray that your word will simply be taught simply and understandably. And yet that it will do more than just enter into our ears and into our minds, but it will find its way deep into our hearts and do a work there where we need to be stirred. Stirred by your Spirit's hand. To stir up the coals that seem to be dying out inside of us. At times the world is, has its way of, of making us cold. Not physically, but spiritually. So help us, Lord, to be revived in your light and in your love and in, your, in the very heat and passion of, of your compassion and of your life, Lord, for your church. May we not miss what you have to say to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I'd like to say to you this evening is I don't, want you to expect the kind of wonderful presentation that we received a couple of weekends ago when Michael and Pam Roselle were here at, with Pottersfield Ministries. I, I know that God's timing is always perfect, so the Lord prepared us then for our deeper study in Jeremiah 18 tonight by giving us a great visual illustration of a potter and his clay that I must say has stayed with me all this time. I think I mentioned this to you when they were here that uh, every time they had come previously, uh, we we had been out of town or we had been uh, doing other things that, you know, God had called me to go speak somewhere or whatever. And and they they came in and and we weren't here, uh, Ceci and I, but... um, this was the first time we got to meet them, the first time we got to see their presentation. And, of course, uh, having three services, I got to see them on Saturday night and then two, twice on Sunday. And every time I saw the presentation, I thought of two things. The first thing I thought of was I'm getting caught up in, in seeing this because I haven't seen it before. But more importantly, I was beginning to realize how important it was for me to see Michael working with the clay in such an intimate way. 
I can never erase from my mind what I saw when he finally put his face next to the clay that was spinning and with all the water that he was putting on and the, the mud, the mud pack that kept kind of hitting his face. But he wasn't concerned about that. He just got to get his arms around that clay and began to work it and, and mold it and form it and fashion it and shape it and, 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 and uh, in, in, in so many different ways. And we saw it go in and out and up and down and he would reach in and remove gunk and then he'd stretch it out one way or another. And I kept thinking, God, that's what you do to us. That's exactly what he wanted us to see. That's how God works in us. And as Michael kind of referred uh, to this, he kind of made mention of the fact that the clay itself is actually resistant at first because it's hard. And there has to be work and there has to be water added, softening. And to some extent, we also saw something made really beautiful and then all of a sudden it fell apart. It's like our lives too, isn't it? God begins that work. Something happens. But then he starts again. It's interesting that in our text, that's what we see happening here as well. In just a moment, we'll see it. But the fact that that presentation had such a lasting effect with many of us is a testament to the illustrative and instructive nature of God's Word. The illustrative and instructive nature of God's Word, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures, because that's what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And it is the language itself that is designed to be significant. What I mean by that is it is picturesque. It is symbolic. It has symbols in a word. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 says, For Jews request a sign. This is how they studied their scriptures, as a, as, as a sign. There's a sign here. There are many signs. Every Hebrew symbol is a sign. So Paul is right when he says Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. You look at Western languages like Greek and English and Spanish and others. And really it, it's, it's giving us thought, not pictures in the language itself. Oh, we can put words together. That's what good authors do. Good, put words together and make you know great stories and all. But in, in, in fact, it's the deep understanding of what the words are saying that the Greeks seek after. But notice, he goes on to say, but we preach Christ crucified. That's a sign. And that's a symbol. To the Jews, a stumbling block. What is the greatest stumbling block today to the Jews? Jesus. And the cross. They don't understand it. But God said they wouldn't understand it. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. Why would anybody want to give their lives for the sake of others? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the power of God and the wisdom of God is seen so instructive in God's word by pictures. God is saying to Jeremiah, go to the potter's house. I'm going to show you a picture. I'm going to show you an image. And you pass that image on to my people. So as with the potter, there was great significance, you see, in the continual picture being given of water, constantly added to the clay to keep it supple, to keep it flexible, in fact, to keep it stretchable, much, much like the Word of God, being poured into our lives, keeping us workable in the hands of the master potter. What is the water? The water is, is symbolic of the Word of God. 
could also be symbolic of the Spirit of God, but particularly it is symbolic of the Spirit of, of, of the water, I should say the Word of God. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. I, I want to lay this foundation down before we go on into Jeremiah, but in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, he says, Paul says, For we ourselves were also once foolish. Now think about this list here, folks. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, this was what you were, not what you are. This is what you were. We ourselves were. Do you all notice that word were? It is past tense. You were foolish. Stop here for a moment. If you were foolish, then you were hard as, a, hard as clay that was dried to the, to the point of, of just cracking. Remember that. You were foolish. Hard. Disobedient. Hard. Deceived. Hard. Serving various lusts and pleasures? Hard. Living in malice and envy? Hard. Hateful and hating one another? Hard. Bitter. Dry. Dead. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which uh, we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us, notice, through the washing of regeneration and renewing, of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the Spirit. Spirit comes into our life, all of a sudden we're made new. We're workable now. We're softened. And the process of the potter and the clay begins. But there's a picture in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Paul speaking to the church and using as an illustration of this relationship between Christ and the church, uh, the love of husbands and wives toward each other. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the what? The washing of water by the word. The word of God. Water, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The word of God constantly being added to our life, constantly making us more workable and flexible and stretchable. When we start having problems and trials in our lives, we we may at times wonder why, But when we turn to the Lord, the Lord just says, I'm just making you the way I want you to be. Get back into the Word. Get back into prayer. Get back into the Spirit. The water is being applied. God wants to stretch us and use us. To use us, He has to make us the vessel He wants us to be. So with all of that in mind, just kind of reviewing all the pictures that we saw a couple of Sundays ago. With that in mind, we come to the events in Jeremiah chapter 18. Now we see where this particular passage uh, that, uh, that Michael used to uh, begin his presentation. Now we look at it in light of what we've seen so far in the last 17 chapters of the book of Jeremiah, where God is dealing with the people of Judah who have become disobedient toward him, and, and have become idolatrous people and disobedient people and, and uh, uh, have, have totally rejected the love of Christ, or I should say the love of God, the love of the Lord, the Lord God who created them and have provided everything for them. They rejected Him. And He's telling Jeremiah, go tell them, I'm going to bring judgment on them. So these incidents more than likely took place as far as the potter and Jeremiah, it took place during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of King Josiah, and before the Babylonian invasion of Judah. So the invasion hasn't happened yet. And it is important to mention a situation that would be noted later in Jeremiah's prophecy. And I mentioned this, we're going to jump over to chapter 36 for just a moment. But that this King Jehoiakim would burn one of the prophetic scrolls of Jeremiah. You have to understand this, you have to see this, in light of what God is telling Jeremiah to do in going to the potter's house. Notice the kind of king that he is serving, the kind of king that is leading the people astray and away from God. Jeremiah 36, verses 21 through 24. 
So the king, being Jehoiakim, sent Yehudi to bring the scroll, scrolls that had been brought by Jeremiah, and he took it from Elishama, the scribe's chamber. And Yehudi read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. This prophecy. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the hearth before him. And it happened when Yehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with a scribe's knife. In other words, he took the scroll and he began to cut the scroll up and he cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid. Nor did they tear their garments, the king, nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Folks, that, that certainly seems like a picture of our day and time where people hear the word of God and they, don't, they have no response to it other than the fact that they reject it. They reject it so much that they, you know, if, if you, if, with some people I know, you can hand them a Bible, they'll just throw it into a fire. It's just trash that needs to be burned. That's what they see. These were people who were supposed to be God's people. Who, and these were scribes and people working in, in, in the temple and all. But it says they weren't afraid. That tells you how far they've gone. They didn't tear their garments because any time there was any blasphemy, they would tear their garments. Remember they tore their garments when, when, when they had Jesus before them and and Jesus, in, in, in so many words, that he was the Son of God. And they said, blasphemy. They tore their robes. They didn't do it in this, when the word of God was torn up. The king nor any of his servants. So not being like his father, Jehoiakim had neither love nor appreciative respect for the Lord's uh, prophet or even God himself. He surely wasn't interested in Jeremiah's take on politics or in spiritual matters. Much of that, of course, being in the, in the scrolls and the prophecies themselves. But this was the evil that Jeremiah faced throughout his ministry. This was the kind of evil he faced. So getting back to the beginning of this chapter, the Lord tells Jeremiah to go to the potter's house where he would give further instructions. Again, verses 1 through 4. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. And then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, the potter, making something at the wheel. By the way, in those days and times, there there were two wheels. There was a a wheel at the bottom, connected by some kind of a pole that uh, also had a wheel up at the top. The wheel at the bottom was what controlled the spinning. And he did, the potter did it with his feet. So they would move the, the wheel underneath. And that would cause the spinning, uh, the, the top part to spin. That's, that was the, the potter's uh, stone, as, as they call it. And, and uh, then it says, uh, and the vessel that he made, notice, a vessel was being made. That he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Now this, that doesn't mean that the potter made the mistake. But that the clay was, was the mistake in a sense. There was something wrong in the clay. The vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. It could have been some kind of, 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 uh, of rock or, or little stones that, that might have not caused it to set itself well as he was forming it. But nonetheless, it says, so he made it again into another vessel. Michael did this himself. Uh, when he made that first vessel, and then all of a sudden we said, oh my God, look how pretty it is. And, and he scrolled something on the top, and then that part just fell in. We were saying, whoa. He knew what he was doing. He was showing us this picture. It was marred, but then he, he took it again. And turned it into a lump of clay, and he started over. I wonder if we understand that that's us too sometimes. Where God starts over with us and begins to mold us and shape us more and more into the image that he wants us to be. The vessel that he made of clay was marred, so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. And who would know but the potter what to make of that clay and what kind of vessel to make. 
And what kind of vessel was needed? And what kind of vessel it was to be in contrast to the kind of vessel it was before? So when the prophet arrived at the potter's house, he saw him working at this wheel, attempting to mold the clay into a jar, turning the bottom wheel of two with his fist. The potter worked the clay on the top wheel as it turned. Interestingly enough, the potter noticed a defect which constituted a flaw in that jar. It hadn't turned out as he supposed it would. And so with great patience, the potter squashed the jar back into a lump of clay. Started again. He worked and he reworked, worked and reworked the clay time and again until he formed the vessel that he wanted. And it brings to mind, and I know that was repetitive, but I, I have to get that across. How many times does God do this with us? How many times does he put us on the wheel? Brings to mind the thought that the clay doesn't know what the potter's doing. The clay doesn't know what the potter's going to make. The clay has no idea. And it's interesting that we see this thought throughout the scriptures, but especially in the book of Ecclesiastes. There are a number of passages, I just chose one. And that's Ecclesiastes 8, verses 16 and 17. When Solomon writes, When I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, notice, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Man never knows what God's doing. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. We don't always know what God's doing. Sometimes we do know what God's doing because He's given us a little heads up. He's, he's kind of pointing us in a certain direction. Kind of uh, giving us a, a, a vision of what, what He wants. But a lot of times we don't know what He's doing with us. Because we're the individual vessels. And I definitely don't know everything that God's doing with you. I, I, I hope and pray for you that, that you'll be, you'll, that, that you'll be uh, open to, you know, and available to God to do His work in you. But I don't know what He's doing in you as much as you don't know what He's doing in me, but I know that God's doing something. And He's constantly working. He's not, he's not taking a break. He doesn't ever stop. He knows what He's doing. Because when the jar was finished, the Lord explained that the potter and the clay illustrated his relationship with his people. When that uh, pottery was finally made, the jar or whatever the vessel was, the Lord explains it. Notice verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as with this potter? Do you understand the question, folks? You need to understand the question that God is asking. Oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. In other words, I will not do what I was going to do if it repents. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. If I said, I will bless you as I build you, and if, I will bless you if you will be obedient to me, but the moment that you're not obedient to me, and the moment you start going down and doing evil in my sight, then you've lost the blessing. Do you understand what God is saying? Because the key theme in these verses is God's sovereignty. The key theme is God's sovereignty. God is in control of all things. 
And God is not surprised at anything that we do. God is not surprised at what the nations do. God is not surprised at what governments do. God is not surprised at what kings do and presidents do. God is not surprised at what we do. And as the potter held the clay in his hands, so the Lord held the people of Judah in the palm of his hand. Now, this is an expressive way of saying that the Lord can do with his people as he wills. Holding them in his hands means that he possesses all rights and power over them. As in verse 6, God can set up the laws that decide people's destiny, and yet he goes on to explain that he doesn't determine that on a dream or in an unfair and tyrannical way. The Lord isn't isn't irresponsible and subjectively uninformed in what he does, even though he is free to act as he pleases. God's actions are always consistent with His nature. God's actions are always consistent with His nature. What is God's nature? He is holy, holy, holy. He is just. He is wise. He is loving. He is merciful. He is awesome. He is mighty. And He's always consistent with that nature of His. There's a lot of other stuff He is. But also he didn't choose to create little robots that would automatically praise and worship and serve him. There was a song back in the 80s. um, The 80s? You guys were just born. (laughs) It was a Christian song. Done by Steve Taylor. He was the new wave punk Christian guy, but And I tell you what, his message was so powerful. He did a song called, I Want to Be a Clone. And and, and it was about about saying, you know, what's going on with churches where they're trying to make you look like everybody's the same and, you know, everything's the same and you act the same and you talk the same and you do everything the same. you're, You're becoming the image of the pastor or the image of the church and not the image of Christ. That's a heavy duty song. Steve Taylor, I want to be a clone. If you have iTunes, you can be down and listen to it. <laughs> I found it. I said, man, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Great song. And he's got a lot of heavy songs, you know, uh, kind of critical about the way some churches are going today because they're getting away from God's word. But God didn't create us to be robots. He doesn't need any advice from us either, by the way. And we certainly don't have the right to criticize what he does. I want you to listen to Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? Who's taught the Lord? Anybody? Has anybody directed the Spirit of the Lord? The Apostle Paul took this in Romans 11. And in verses 33 through 36, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We, we don't understand God, do we? For who has known the mind of the Lord? See, he's taking this from Isaiah. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Who has ever given to the Lord? Has anybody ever had the Lord come and, hey, can I, can I borrow 20 bucks? The Lord doesn't need to come and ask us for 20 bucks, does he? He doesn't even have to ask us for 20 cents. Or 20 million. Or what about 800 billion? Or what about a million, or I mean a trillion? We're throwing a lot, around a lot of numbers in our economy today, and in our, in our financial problems that we're dealing with in this country. God never has to have any of us lend Him anything. The Bible says He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Which signifies the fact that He owns everything. And everything that we need comes from Him. So folks, no matter how bad the financial crisis may be in this country, we need to trust the Lord. We can't tell the Lord what to do. And we can't can't tell him that that, that we're his counselors. Verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. That says it right there. Of him, through him, to him. All things. He's sovereign, you see. Doesn't need us. 
Thank God he loves us. Made us. He doesn't need us. Jeremiah 23, verse 18, For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard His word? Who has marked His word and heard it? Romans 9, 20, going back, you know, jumping back and forth from Old Testament and New Testament, because Paul takes these things and he says, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, and this is, by the way, a pottery illustration, or a potter's illustration, uh, uh, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Well, I, I don't know about you, but I've heard enough from people who have said, Lord, why have you done this to me? Why have you made me this way? Why have you done this? Why have you done that? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why? God chose to create living beings with a free moral agency. Some call it free will, but it's a free moral agency. What do I mean by that? The ability to choose either to worship Him or to reject Him. In His sovereign will and power, God established within people the law of free moral action and will. Furthermore, He established within the universe the law of repentance and salvation and the law of condemnation. This is what we find God explaining to Jeremiah in verses 7 through 10 of our text. Let's go to verse 7. The instant, he says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, what is he speaking of? His own people. Because he says, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Let me give you four quick things here from verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Verse 7. Listen carefully. The Lord has the power to pronounce judgment on people if they reject Him and live sinful lives. It's a very simple biblical truth. The Lord has the power to pronounce judgment on people if they reject Him and live sinful lives. Verse 8, The Lord has the power to forgive and deliver the same people if they repent of their wickedness. Verse 9, The Lord has the power to build up into a great and mighty nation, whoever, whomever or whatever nation He wants. But notice verse 10, The Lord has the power to withdraw His blessing, which is the good He intended if the same nation begins to disobey and turn away from, from Him. So we've seen in Scripture what the Lord did with Nineveh. You remember Nineveh in the book of Jonah? We've seen in Scripture what the Lord did with Nineveh when Jonah's preaching brought the city to repentance. Now Jonah didn't even want to go. We don't even want to talk about the first two chapters. We all know the story. He's got to be eaten by a whale to get him to Nineveh. Finally, when the whale spits him out, he gets all, goes over there all blanched and bleached and all because of all the juices of the inside of the whale on him, you know. Really making a good picture there, isn't it? And he goes, and what does he say to him? Jonah 3, verse 4, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And then he cried out and he said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he was bound and determined to let them know. In 40 days, you guys are going to be all judged and wiped out. 40 days. That's all he said. And he didn't really like those people. So he liked pronouncing judgment on them because he didn't like them. But you jump down to verse 5 and it says, So the people in Nineveh believe God. Ah, there's a prophet in our midst. And he says, in 40 days, we're going to be overthrown. And they believe God. Proclaim the fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. That means from the king on down. And then word came to the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne. He laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Jump down to verse 10 and it says, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil, they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. It's exactly what he's saying here in the book of Jeremiah.
He has the right and the power and the sovereign right and the sovereign power to do these things. I want you to consider, if you will, the word of the Lord in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 8. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Notice, let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Listen. The apostles, some of the apostles wanted Jesus when they were rejected in Samaria, wanted Jesus to go and just throw, you know, call down fire from heaven on these people. They rejected me. They rejected us. They were trying to say, well, Lord, they rejected you, but then in fact, they were were rejected. They want to call down fire from heaven. But what does God say? That's not always His thoughts. Nor is it His ways. Seek the Lord. Folks, if there's somebody you don't really like at all, and they're, they're an unbeliever, and you probably don't like that they're unbelievers, and, 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 you know, be honest, and we, we sometimes don't like people. We say, oh, we love everybody. Yeah, right. Sometimes we don't love people. Sometimes we have a hard time with them because they have such a, such a nasty, you know, countenance or a nasty personality or a nasty way about them. And we don't want, you know, we, in, you know, on the outside we might tell people, oh, I'm praying for this guy because he needs Jesus. On the inside I say, Lord, Jesus, take him. Just put him in hell. Just put him there not right now. Just open the door. Let him go in. Let him find his way there. We're like that, folks. Let's, come on, let's be honest. But the Lord said, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and I'll have mercy. That's God's way. That's why we need to give mercy to God. In other words, give him the, the, the right to his mercy. Because we're not as merciful as God is. I tell you what, in 9-11, we were all ready to put... If we had caught Osama bin Laden, we wouldn't have shared the gospel with him. We would have shot him on the spot. See? No? We? On the other hand, on the other hand, if the Lord promised to bless a nation as he did with Israel in his covenants, and they did evil in his sight, then he could withhold the blessing and send judgment instead. He's done it. He did it. He warned them. He said it would happen. He gave them the opportunity to repent, gave them the opportunity to turn, gave them time and time and time and time until the time was up. It is important to remember that God neither changes in character nor does he need to repent of his actions. Please understand this about God. He does not change in character, nor does he need to repent of his actions. Because God's actions are always perfect. God is not capricious in the things that he does. He always does things perfectly. His anger is righteous anger. His love is everlasting. Numbers 23, 19, if we learn anything about God at all tonight. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will, not, will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make good? God always makes good on his word. If he says he's going to bless you because you have, you have repented and turned back to him, then he's going to do what he said he would do. But if he said, I will bless you if you obey me, but if you don't obey me, I'm not going to bless you. When he does not bless you, do not blame him because his character is always perfect. Malachi 3.6 For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. He has promised that he would not consume his people to the point that he would judge them eternally because he has a plan for them. And of course, we know what that plan was to bring Messiah through his people.
But God didn't change. But God does have the sovereign freedom to alter his actions depending on the responses of peoples and nations. Now, the interpretation of the picture of the potter and the clay, let's look at it as being something uh, national. It, It was a national thing. In other words, referring to the nation and the house of Israel. The interpretation of the picture of the potter and the clay was national. But the application of the picture was and is individual. In other words, calling for a personal response. The interpretation is national. The application is individual. How do we know this? Look at Jeremiah 18 again. Now getting back to our text. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. Now therefore, speak to the men of Israel. Or of Judah, I'm sorry. Speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants. Who are they? Made up of all the individuals of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem. Not speaking to the nation, but speaking to the inhabitants. Speaking to the men. Saying, thus saith the Lord, behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every... Can you say it? Every one. That's individual. From his evil way. And make your ways and your doings good. So it is a simple fact that nations are made up of individuals and individuals have the ability to receive God's word or reject it. It is true that humans are made from the dust of the ground. They live in fragile bodies. But unlike the clay on the potter's wheel, we have the ability to resist. Consider that we have so many different hands that the Lord has used in our young lifetime to mold our lives. When we were growing up, how many hands were used to mold us? How many hands? Whether they be parents or older siblings or even teachers, whether they were ministers or drill sergeants. Do you understand? A lot of hands molding us. How often did we fight against them? I I have yet to hear of a perfect childhood. Is there one out there? Anybody? I never did anything wrong. I was a beautiful child. Perfect in all my ways. You know who could say that? There was only one who could say that. That was Jesus. I don't think Jesus ever got spanked. I know he didn't. People said, well, you know, you should, uh, you should have discipline for Jesus. Wait a minute. He never did anything wrong. The Bible tells us that. He never sinned. If anything, Jesus could have spanked his parents. Oh, Dad, you shouldn't let that. You know uh uh-uh, mommy. They were imperfect. He was perfect. Do you understand? We fight. We fight against it. Why? Because it's our nature. We were born in sin. So what is the Lord having to do now? Getting back to Israel here. The, the Lord proclaimed, or proclaimed that He was fashioning, it says. Fashioning a disaster. Other translations use the word framing, or the word preparing, or the word shaping. King James says, to frame evil. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that these are terms having the same root word as the word potter? It's the same root word. It's a play on words. The Lord proclaimed He was fashioning a disaster. This play on words indicates that God, like a potter, was actually shaping or forming His plan of judgment against them. Only one hope remained for the people. One hope. What was it? Repentance. Repentance. Thus, God appealed to the people to turn away from their evil ways. In order to escape the coming judgment and disaster, they had to turn to the Lord and live righteously. That's all they had to do. But I want to ask you, what was their response to the Lord and to His prophet Jeremiah? And what was God's subsequent warning to them? Well, we're only going to go so far today. We're, we're going to finish with verse 12 here. But I'm going to read from verse 12 through 17 because you need to see the whole passage here. We're going to come back and study this next time. Jeremiah 18 verse 12 said, They said, notice, this is the people saying to what God said, if you'll repent. They said, that's hopeless. Can you believe that? They said to God, this is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own 
plans. And we will, everyone, obey the dictates of his evil heart. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Therefore, thus says the Lord. Now the Lord's going to speak. Ask now among the Gentiles, not the Jews, among the Gentiles, who has heard such things? Who has heard such things? The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. They had been once called the virgin daughter of Israel. No longer. Because they've done a horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow of water, the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Because my people have forgotten me. And again, we'll come back to these verses next time. But notice what he says. Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols. And they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in pathways and not on a highway. To make their land desolate in a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Literally, he's saying, I'm going to look at your back and not your, not your face on the day of your calamity. Why? Because they've turned, them, they've turned themselves away from God. So the people of Judah would respond by saying that, that they were helpless to change. They were helpless to change. Nobody can change me. Nobody can change us. We're just, they were stubborn. They, were stubbornly con, uh, they would stubbornly continue to follow the plans of their own sinful hearts. The, the nation refused to turn from her idolatry to follow the Lord. Now you would expect that from whom? You would expect that from the world. Where the world today is full of people who, do, who want to reject God. You know, the atheists of today. Oh my goodness, they just... You know, they don't, they don't come with any kind of rational arguments. They just come with a lot of bad words to say about Jesus and God and, and Christianity and all of that. So we would think that we would expect that from the world, but the people who are called by God to be His people, refusing to turn from their idolatry to follow the Lord, they were so chained to their sins that they chose to follow their own evil plans, worshiping dead idols and suffer for, for it than to obey and serve the true and living God and enjoy His blessings. They'd rather suffer. Folks, it, it makes no sense to me when a person, you know, you tell somebody about hell, and they say, I don't believe in hell. And even if there was a hell, listen, me and my friends, we're going to go down there, we're going to party all, all, you know, all eternity in hell. They don't understand what hell is. But for people who know, or should know, to turn, in that manner. God have mercy on them. Especially those who have ever made a commitment to God and to Christ. God have mercy on them. It should remind us of one verse we studied previously. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. A heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. They were taking the Lord's threats and exhortations and throwing them right out the window. That's what they were doing. This very attitude goes all the way back to the second chapter of Jeremiah. If you remember Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 25. Withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, there's no hope. No, for I have loved aliens and after them I will go. It's not talking about little creepy men from Mars. Love the aliens who have all the other gods around them. They were saying, our case is is desperate. We're hopelessly abandoned to our sins and their penalty. We will walk after our own devices and plans. We'd rather die than be right. We'd rather die than be good. Isaiah 30 verses 9 through 11. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things. 
We don't want to hear all that preaching at Calvary Chapel. We don't want to hear all that stuff about the Word of God, the teaching of verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Genesis to Revelation. We don't want to hear that. You make us feel good. Well, I hope that you feel good when you know that you're doing what God wants you to do. And that we have the Word of God as that mirror to show us our hearts so that we might get ourselves right with God and enjoy the blessings that God wants to give us for walking right with Him. But smooth words... We want to hear smooth things. We want to know that we're feeling, I want to feel good about me. Their church is packing, their, their churches are, are in stadiums now packing up, you know, because they want to hear good, smooth words. They're being led astray, folks. I'm being told what's going to happen. We need to be ready. We need to show the love of Christ in our lives. We know, you know, it's all about us. It's all about me. Don't prophesy right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. I'd rather hear deceit than, you know, the truth. Verse 11, get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Wow. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? But saying, God, get out of my way. You know what the clay is saying to the potter? Get out of my way. Does the clay ever say to the potter? Does the thing made always say to the one who made him, get out of my way? Interesting, isn't it? While we pick up, uh, while we'll pick up here next time, let me just say that there is still hope. There's still hope for the hopeless who will not succumb to the lies of the enemy. There's still life for the lifeless in spirit. There's still love for the loveless of heart. There's still strength for the weak. There is still a way that is safe and holy. Isaiah 35 verse 8 says, A highway shall be there in a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Jeremiah 6 verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. And then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. The encouragement is, walk in those old paths. What's the old path? Part of it is this. This is the old path. It's a lot older than us. Been around a lot longer than us. Still going strong after all these years. God's word. But what else? What else? 2 Samuel 22:31 says, As for God, His way is perfect. The word, of, the word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. The way of the Lord. The path of the Lord. That's proven. And lastly, we know who the, who the path is. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the path. That's the way. That's the life. And that's the truth. So help me God. Amen.